Hello and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine, the podcast that travels through time to study the history of the Bible. Um, this is uh, the first in a series of Easter-themed episodes that we're doing. Easter is still a couple weeks away, but we got like four or five episodes around the Easter story, the Passion narrative, and uh, Helen. Today we're going to start with the first of our of our kind of quote unquote bad guys in the Easter mm. story. Who do we who are we talking about today? It's amazing how many bad guys there seem to be around the Easter story, isn't it? Well, this t- today we're doing one that maybe people haven't heard of. He's mm. the high priest, Joseph Caiaphas. So people might know about a high priest, but whether they recognize his name or not, I'm not so sure. Because only only two of the Gospels give him his name. Okay. So um, he's a bit of a, a murky character, perhaps. Joe, Joe Caiaphas. And... Uh... You wrote a book. What's the name of the book so everybody can run out and get it? Oh, I can't remember. Um, I'll just have a look. Caiaphas, <laughs> <laughs> Friend of Rome and Judge of Jesus. Okay. That's, a, that's a nippy little title, isn't it? Yeah, the subtitle really grabbed you. <laughs> um, so let's jump into, first of all, to set the stage of who who was Caiaphas in the Bible? What do we? What What story does he show up in? What role does he play? Well, he only comes a couple of times. So he's um, he's the high priest who um, who is in charge of the trial against Jesus. So he gets mentioned. He's mentioned by name only in Matthew and John. The other Gospels just sort of say the high priest mm. or, or talk about chief priests and things generally. And he also pops up again at the beginning of Acts, where again, he's sort of leading the high priestly opposition against the um, the early Christians. Okay. All right. And... I mean, you you wrote a whole book about Pontius Pilate too. So these are kind of the guys. You know, Pontius Pilate is the Roman in charge of the Roman trial, but this is the the high priest of the the Jewish the Jewish high priest, right? Yeah, I like the bad guys. So um, yeah. <laughs> I I also like a challenge because we know so little about Caiaphas that you know trying to reconstruct something of his life just from from tiny tiny little snippets here and there um, was was actually really interesting. And it rather than kind of looking at texts about Caiaphas, it was really reading around and trying to understand what the priesthood was all about in the first century, what the role of the high priest was, and and then just sort of using imagination to try and get into get into his mindset. Right. Well, okay, let's talk about some of those things. So we do know that he was he existed, right? We we have other sources. Like is it is our friend Josephus, is he the guy? <laughs> Josephus is always the one to go to. Right. Yep, Josephus mentions him not not as much as you might have hoped. I mean, so he doesn't really go into any detail. It doesn't tell us any stories particularly about Caiaphas, but he does tell us that um, Joseph Caiaphas was the high priest, and and actually he was high priest the longest of any first century high priest. So he was in hmm. charge for nineteen years, which is way longer than anybody else. Oh, okay, and it's not. This isn't like for life appointment type thing. Like you don't inherit it and then. Well, <laughs> it used to be. It oh. used to be back in the day, sort of you know, in the very sort of early days of the um, Hebrew Bible. Um, it was for life, and um, and it, it got passed down certain families, the Zedekite line, and it was for life. You died, and then it went to your your son or your brother, 
um, always down the male line, of course. But 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 one of the things that Herod the Great did when he came to power was to try and limit the power of the high priests. And so he started appointing people and deposing people and just mm. kind of, you know, using it as his own personal thing. So I guess anybody who displeased him or didn't sort of toe a a Herodian line would would mm. be out and he'd bring somebody else in. And and so when the Romans came to power, that's what they did as well. So you actually, get, I mean, some some high priests only lasted a year. In fact, just before Pilate, there were, sorry, just before Caiaphas, there were a load who just lasted a year. Mm. And then um, Caiaphas lasted this huge, long, long mm. term of office at 19 years. Well, yeah, well, we'll come back to the relationship between, you know, the high priest and, and Rome and stuff like that, because yeah, there seems to be a, there's a lot of politics going on there too. But let's let's <laughs> let's let's talk about you know what a high priest was. What was a Jewish high priest in the Second Temple period? Kind of what were their their duties and responsibilities? Well, their main duty was the Jerusalem Temple. They're they're sort of in charge of the temple, and um, Judaism, of course, is different to other religions in that they only have one temple. So, you know, you can go into any city in the Roman Empire, and there's a there's a temple of Artemis or mm. or Dionysus or whatever. But that the the important thing about um, Jewish belief is that there is just one temple and it's this one in Jerusalem. So the high priest is in charge of this temple and, and he's kind of the mediator between God and humans and, and, and also because sort of religion and politics is so firmly entwined at the time, um, he also has a political element to his his role he's sort of the mediator again between um the roman governor and mm. the people and 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 he's kind of the spokesperson of of the jewish nation at the time okay and so within the temple does he have some sp- i i've i've read about like the holy of holies like is, isn't he the only one who can get who can step inside there and yeah, that's right. And once a year on the okay. Day of Atonement, he is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. So this is the central bit of the um, the temple, the place where God is most believed to be, the holiest mm. place that um, only this one person can go into and only once a, a year. And, um, and, and he goes in there and he, normally he would wear, I mean, at, at feast days, he's got these very splendid robes, but to go into the Holy of Holies, he just wears a very simple robe. Hmm. He goes in and um, he sort of asks forgiveness for the people's sin. And, and and it's sort of popularly believed he might hear the voice of God mm. or or be some kind of prophet. And then and then he goes away. And and the whole thing is kind of, you know, um, there's, there's lots of air of mystery and sure. awesomeness about it. You know, he's come into the presence of God. Will he get out alive? <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it, it must have been an incredible thing to, yeah. to do once a year to go into the Holy of Holies, something that nobody else is allowed to go into. Right, right. Oh, well, that's cool. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so we, he, you said he's in this priestly line. So he, he inherited this from his father, right? In his case, uh, no, not oh, in no? his case. No, no, he um he he actually made a very good marriage. So um, uh-huh. the Romans had um, the Romans had favoured a family um, led by a guy called Annas or Ananus, but he's called Annas in the New Testament. And so Annas was high priest for seven years, and five of his sons were also high priests. The, these were some of the ones who only lasted a year, so you know he got through them quite quickly. But um, Caiaphas was married to Annas's daughter, so he's 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 kind of in, he's part of this 
this high priestly clan through marriage. So okay. we don't actually know very much more about um, Caiaphas's background, but he's clearly, you know, he, he he married the right woman. And so this helps his career. And um, in around about AD 19, he becomes high priest. Okay. Wow. Okay. The in-law, the in-law married into the mm. high priest. Um, so like you said, we don't know almost anything about really about his background or anything like that, but can we make assumptions if he was in this class, would he have been, you know, pretty wealthy, kind of in a higher, higher tax bracket, as we say around here? Yeah, a little, a little definitely. Than most <laughs> I would say the highest tax bracket. Okay. Yeah, no, he's he's very wealthy. He's an aristocrat. He's, um, you know, in this in this society, status is everything, and and sort of lineage. So he's from the best family. He's from the best priestly clan. Um, so he's already part of that, even before he marries into this 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 clan that actually has got the the high priesthood. So um, his family probably owned estates. Um, he's an aristocrat. He he naturally would have been somebody who expected to be in power, expected to be deferred to. You know, he's sure. he's kind of a man of substance. He, he and, kind of and knows would that assume is. that he was pretty educated as well. Yeah, he would have been. I mean, he would have been well educated in the Jewish law and, um, you know, the Jewish scriptures. But he would also have had probably a good Greek education as well, because Greek is sort of the language of the aristocracy. It's the language, um, you know, although most people are speaking Aramaic, that's what you'd speak at home. Mm. If you wanted to to talk to visitors, traders, you know, anybody like that, the the Roman prefect, he'd um, probably speak in Greek. Okay, And then... I always get confused. So we have these different groups of of priests, and he was part. So there's, there's like the Pharisees you hear a lot about, but he wasn't a Pharisee, right? He would have been in the no. Sadducees. Yeah, and the Pharisees aren't priests. Um, they're, priests. Okay. they're they're just sort of, uh, I guess, scribes, people who are interested in in the the Jewish law. So they're mm. not. I mean, you could be you could be a priest and and a Pharisee. Josephus was a priest and a Pharisee, but 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 you can't just assume that all all Pharisees are priests. Whereas a lot, probably most of the Sadducees were priests, and they and probably most of the Sadducees were these aristocratic priests. Um, we don't know much about the Sadducees because they didn't leave any writing, but um, yeah. they again seem to be wealthy aristocrats and. Um, Josephus doesn't like them at all. I mean, mm. because Josephus is a Pharisee, okay. he he really doesn't like them, and he says they're they're conservative, they're badly behaved, they're rude, mm. they're arrogant. Um, I think I think basically they're they are sort of you know they're just conservatives. They're traditional. They're they're people who are in charge of the temple. They want things to stay as they are because okay. you know why not? They're they're doing well out of this. They're they're mm. at the top of the tree. And that everything is to their liking. So, whereas most um, ordinary people at this time are starting to believe in a Messiah who's going to come and mm. sort of save them in some way, and they're starting to believe in resurrection, um, the Sadducees didn't believe in either of those. Probably again, just because they didn't need to. You know, if you're if that you're the guy in charge with wealth and status, you're not looking for a Messiah to come, and you're not bothered about the next life you know you're having sure. a good time in this life so um so yeah they probably belong to to these group of um sadducees and you you said you talked about this and the book is excellent i i really do encourage people to <laughs> to read it but you you talk about what what caiaphas would have seen 
you know, growing up and in his and as he was being educated at the sort of the, the political scene, the rebellions, the way Rome, you know, put down these rebellions. So, like, just give me a little background about, you know, what his relationship might have been with Rome or sort of the anxieties and concerns that he would have had about Roman rule at that time. I think Caiaphas must have lived through really interesting times. Um, you know, he's he's probably born sometime in the reign of Herod the Great, um, and he would have seen the end of Herod's rule, um, the way that the, the the nation just sort of dissolved into riots and rebellions. Mm. Then it, it was put down by the legate of Syria who came in with the legions and, you know, taking a hard stand against anybody who opposed Rome. And what probably would have um, affected Caiaphas and, and, and other chief priests like him most would have been what happened to the temple at that stage, because the Romans came in to the temple and they burnt part of the porticos down. Hmm. So, I mean, they, and, and, and at that time, that, that's all they did. They sort of left and, and the rest of the temple was, was left intact. But, but they must have realized that actually it wouldn't take much for Rome to come and burn the temple or, hmm. or you know, do something worse. And so, I mean, a, a lot of a lot of scholars will say, "Oh, you know, Caiaphas and the chief priests—they were collaborators," and, and and be very negative about them. And of course, on one level, that's true—they they did collaborate with Rome. But you know, you wonder what else, what other strategy was there? You could mm. you could make a stand, but then Rome is going to come and kill everybody and burn your mm. temple. And what have you got at the end of all of that? Mm. So I think I think growing up in those times would have taught him a certain pragmatism. You know, sure. Rome is here, whether you like it or not. Rome is all powerful, almighty. Mm. And, um, you know, you've just got to work out some way of living with Rome in a way that kind of protects the temple and protects what's most important mm. about the Jewish faith. And maybe we just have to let certain things kind of slip you know certain yeah. freedoms maybe just have to slip because of that no that makes sense yeah so and who was the, who was the sanhedrin <laughs> what was the sanhedrin well yeah the sanhedrin that's one of those things that um people don't believe in the sanhedrin quite so much nowadays okay. if if you read if you read some older books about first century judea they'll talk about a sanhedrin that was made up of 71 people and it had pharisees and sadducees um there and um you know like the the idea is that it's a fixed council of of sort of mm. jewish aristocrats but nowadays people have realized that our only evidence for that is actually much later in rabbinic writings mm. and rabbinic writings are kind of it's the rabbis writing about how they would like society to be in this sort of ideal universe. We'll mm. have a council and there'll be 71 and it'll be half and okay. half. Um, when you actually look at Josephus and try and sort of piece together how society was actually run, um, there's no mention of this Sanhedrin, uh, certainly not a fixed Sanhedrin. Um, the word Sanhedrin just means a council, a gathering, mm. um, sitting down together. So um, what people actually think happened is that the high priest was the one in charge. And whenever he needed sort of a group or a council, he just kind of gathered an ad hoc um, group of people. So, you know, whoever was most useful at the mm. time, you know, whoever had competence or expertise um, in, in a particular area, he would just gather to be a sort of a, a, a council for, for that particular 
point. Okay. So, so it's really the high priest and a sort of a, a, a small group of advisors who might well have been other other members of this sort of priestly dynasty that he's married into, who are kind of the they're, they're the ones running the show basically. Okay. So yeah, I mean, if we if we circle back to the biblical account, you know, when so Jesus is brought, you know, before he's brought to Pilate, he's brought to Caiaphas, or like you said, in some of the gospels it just says brought to the high priest so mm. does that jive with what we understand about how things would have worked like would would he have been brought like i think he even brought to caiaphas's house right to kind of yeah um, yeah i mean they talk about his house or his palace i mean mm. he, the high priest would certainly have had a you know big mansion house in in jerusalem probably the swankiest place in <laughs> town and you know he's got a courtyard and in john's gospel you hear about um you know the courtyard that he's gone into and and the gatekeeper and Mm. things like that so yeah i mean i think particularly john's gospel sort of gives that sense of um being brought to to the high priest at night and 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 rather than this sort of council meeting that you get in mark's gospel in john it's more of a kind of a a one-to-one jesus and the high priest maybe a couple of advisors there um, so rather than this sort of big body, a sort of a, a fixed council who are convened to, to meet in the night, probably what happened historically was that it was Caiaphas, maybe Anas, his father-in-law, other people from this priestly group. And, and, and so this small group of people kind of met to, to discuss, um, what should be done about Jesus. Hmm. And is it, yeah, I mean, is it a trial in the sense that we think of a trial, or was it? It was just like you said, these sort of this council saying, "Well, he seems to have broken this law or something." Like, how how does it work? Yeah, probably not a, a formal trial. And and again, one of the problems is that the gospels are all written sort of in the late first century at a time when when Christ followers are sort of moving away from um, from Jews and the synagogue, and so there's. There's quite a lot of anti-Jewishness mm. in the in the Gospels, and probably what's happening here is that the the Gospel writers are giving the impression that it's a much more formal thing than it was, mm. pa- and, and partly this is is to sort of to show the Jews in a bad light. Mm. Um, so you know that, that they've they've got every incentive to make it into a bigger council, and it was all done you know properly, and there was this verdict and. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a proper trial scene, whereas probably in, in fact it was um, something much more low key. I mean, all they needed to do was to gather to decide the charges against Jesus mm. and then to decide what they were going to do with him after that. But they, I mean, they don't do anything, right? So they, they decide <laughs> to hand him over to the Romans. So why, like, what is the charge that they think the Romans are going to levy against him or why would it have been against more the empire than, you know, Jewish law? Yeah. Well, we don't know for sure why um, the Jewish authorities wanted to get rid of Jesus. I mean, the most likely thing actually, I think is what Mark's gospel tells us and that it was something to do with the incident in the temple. Mm. Um, You know, so Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He's kind of made that made that um that demonstration everybody is this is a pilgrimage feast everybody's walking in you know they're pilgrims and there jesus is on a on a, a mount and he's kind of he's saying you know here i am this is something mm. and then he goes into the temple and he sort of performs this symbolic act that most people nowadays think is something to do with saying the temple is going to be destroyed mm. um and and so 
the likeliest thing is that the the Jewish authorities are just really worried about what he's going to do next. You mm. know, he's got a following. They've come with him from Galilee. There's people in Jerusalem who are following him. What's going to happen next? And somebody with Caiaphas's background is going to think, well, maybe he's going to do something else in the temple. And then that'll cause the Romans to come and to trample all over the temple. Mm. And so, and, 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 you know, the whole feast that it's, 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 um, Passover time, the place is crowded. So they're risking the whole feast. So they want to just get rid of him quickly. Um, it, it may well be that, um, they think he's a blasphemer because speaking against the temple could be seen as blasphemy. Um, it maybe they think he's a false prophet. I mean, there's a range mm. of things that they might think about him. But when it comes to actually passing him over to Pilate, the sensible thing there is to make it a political charge. Mm. So to say, you know, he's claiming to be some kind of king, a rival right. to Caesar. And and that's something that, that Pilate would certainly take take notice of. Okay. But do we know, I mean, would would the high priest have had their own authority to... I don't know. I mean, to punish or potentially even kill Jesus for something like blasphemy? Well, we don't know. Um, <laughs> maybe mm. they did. I mean, it again, this is something that scholars used to say that Jews definitely couldn't execute in the first century. Mm. And the evidence for that was a passage in John's Gospel where Pilate says to the Jews, take him yourself and deal with him. And the Jews say, we're not allowed to execute anybody. So, so scholars said, ah, well, this shows that Jews mm. in the first century had to pass him over to Pilate. The problem is that that passage is not nearly as clear as as we think. I mean, maybe John is just basing it on what he assumes from mm. Mark's gospel. You know, maybe he's actually not got any any hard evidence. And I think most people nowadays would think probably for religious cases where it didn't matter that much to Rome, um, Jews probably could execute. I mean, there's all sorts of things that 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 could lead to death. Yeah, I mean, if you're reading um, the Bible, yeah, there's certainly every other, <laughs> almost every other sin is, is <laughs> going to be stoned or something. So exactly, you know. exactly. You know, adultery, all these things. I mean, probably they, you know, probably they weren't being um, executed by the first century. But you know, there's probably a range of religious things that 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 the governor is not going to be that bothered about. But in in the case of somebody like Jesus, um, where there is a political dimension. It's it's maybe more uncertain. So um, maybe in that case, um, they they needed to pass him on to Pilate, or or maybe they just wanted to pass him on to Pilate. You know, get mm. somebody else to do your dirty work for you. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about sort of those reasons why the high priest might have wanted to pass it on, and so you know, do do scholars talk about sort of political reasons why they would have been collaborating in this way or why they would have kind of wanted to wash their own hands of this and, and hand him over to Pilate. Yeah, a little bit. But I, I think that's the area that actually is, is the most interesting. You know, what were the political reasons here? Yeah. And it, it, it does seem to me that, um, you know, given given the festival, given given Jesus's popularity in a, in a number of um, areas, it would be very good from the high priest's point of view just to pass him over mm. to Rome. Because um, Pilate was 
you know, the gospel suggests that um, Pilate sort of wanted to, to release Jesus and it was right. it was because of the Jews pushing that, that he got rid of him. I'm sure that's not the case. I'm sure Pilate would have been only too keen to get yeah. rid of Jesus because like the high priests, he's really worried that Jesus is going to cause some kind of riot. Yeah. And um, the best thing from his point of view is just to nip it all in the bud, get rid of Jesus and right. hope the whole thing dies down. Um, so in a way, I think passing Jesus over to Pilate would have been a, doing a favor for the governor. And um, I think the chief priest probably passed him over thinking, well, you know, here we're doing something for you, Pontius Pilate. You know, maybe you can mm -hmm. do something for us. Um, and it's this whole thing about negotiation, diplomacy, face to face, working out that that is the the way that things are done in in these sort of eastern sure. countries of, of of the first century um and you know i'll do something for you and i'll expect a favor back later on and and from the the high priest's point of view it's probably only a fairly minor thing it's it's the life of a galilean peasant mm. you know what what does that matter um, when bigger things are at stake and maybe, you know, we can ask for some other favors, hmm. um, further down the line. So, yeah, I think, I think politics was, and, but, but again, this is a world where politics and religion is all kind of part of the, the whole swirl of what's going on and you can't really <laughs> divide one from another. Well, like you said, Caiaphas, He's there, and certainly Jesus's trial and in his indictment, but he comes back in Acts. So, how, how do mm. a similar situation with the apostles, right? In Acts, they're kind of brought before him. Yeah, although there, I mean, the, the they don't pass pass the apostles on to the governor. First of all, they they just tell them not to say anything. <laughs> you know, we'll let you go, but just don't tell anybody about Jesus. Hmm. And of course, they go and they carry on um, evangelizing just as they did before. And so then they arrest them again, and that time they put them in prison. But then they miraculously get out of prison. Hmm. So, um, yeah, they seem to take a slightly different tack with um, with the the. Um, apostles and and Gamaliel of course stands up and says you know if this is coming from God then there's nothing you can do about it if mm. it's coming from from humans then you know maybe you can but um, but I mean although they are portrayed as as persecutors of the early church um, they don't seem to be kind of attacking the early Christians in the same way that they they certainly seem to want to want Jesus dead sure. in the Gospels. Sure. Okay. Well, we know that Caiaphas was not high priest. He lost his post as high priest in 37 AD. But do we know, do we have any idea why he would have been removed? We don't. But there's an intriguing detail that he lost his post just a month or so after Pilate lost his post. Okay. So Pilate was... was um, sent back to Rome to answer charges brought against him by the Samaritans in um, probably around about January 37. Um, and then about a month or so later, the legate of Syria came down to Jerusalem and he he um, lessened taxes. He gave other concessions to the Jewish people. And he also got rid of Caiaphas. Hmm. Now, some people, some scholars say, ah, well, you know, Caiaphas was hated. And so this is also a concession. But I'm not quite so convinced that it was a concession. My my take on this is that there's a bit of a power vacuum that, um, you know, suddenly there's no Roman governor. There's just an interim man waiting hmm. to sort of find out what happens to Pilate. 
And Caiaphas has been there 19 years. You know, he maybe thought this was a time to assert himself. He's mm. sort of getting, you know, maybe a bit big for his boots. Mm. Um, so that's my take on him, on it, that maybe, um, maybe he was actually quite popular with the people. We actually don't really know. Um, but I think he must have been doing a reasonable job to be kept in power that, that long. long. Yeah. yeah. And something we're going to talk about, and I'm excited when we do a, a Pontius Pilate episode, but there's, you know, he has this whole afterlife in the imagination, like, you mm. know, in the Christian, early Christian imagination, and he gets punished in various ways. Caiaphas is another, like you said, another baddie. He's another kind of bad guy in the story. Does he, does he get portrayed? Does he have a sort of a mythical afterlife where he has to pay for his crimes? <laughs> um, a little bit. Nothing like as much as, as Pilate, though. I think, I think the thing with Pilate is, you know, he's one person and you, and you get this very strong, dramatic thing with mm. Pilate and Jesus. You know, whenever you see art, you know straight away who, which one is Pilate and mm. which one is Jesus. And the, the two guys are eyeballing one another and it's this sort of standoff between the two. And so with Pilate, yeah, you get this very lively afterlife. Um, with Caiaphas, there's a little bit of that. So there's some traditions that he killed himself or that he was killed by the emperor. There's there's also a tradition in the Acts of Pilate that he became a Christian. But mm. I mean, I, I don't think there's any history to that at all, that the whole point there is just to say that, you know, everybody who encounters Jesus becomes a Christian. Sure. Um, so he's quite murky most of the time. And I, I think... I think the reason for that is that he just tends to get sort of lumped together with the Jews who are mm. the opponents mm. and and seen as this kind of hostile group. Um, so rather than having that sort of one-to-one standoff with Jesus and that, that strong sense of identity, he's, he's kind of um, – just part of this group in in sort of the middle ages where you get the the mystery plays um he gets a bit of a sort of a, a another um flourish there where he's often he's often sort of portrayed as um the clerics of the time so you mm. know the priests of the day and you know sort of smug and self-satisfied and that kind mm -hmm. of thing and, and and people people make a lot of fun of the um the priests in in these plays um but generally speaking no he's he's not had anything like sort of the lively afterlife yeah. he ends up in dante's um divine inferno uh, um, he's um, where is he? The eighth circle of hell, I think. So yeah, that's a bad one. I heard that's a really <laughs> that's a bad, bad one. one. That's a bad um, one to be in. No, I mean, and yeah. and you, you brought up the the you know these texts were written at a time when when Christians were were separating themselves from larger Judaism, and that there was definitely you know anti-Jewish sentiment or, or characterizations in these texts. So is is Caiaphas in some way kind of like the the image, I mean, and you see it in art and stuff like that, of like the plotting, sort of, you know, I want to, I don't want to say evil, but that yeah, this sort of plotting character, this this cleric, like you said, who who was going to do whatever it took to to get rid of Jesus, and and that he, and like you said, is that sort of a larger characterization of the of the Jews' role in the story as well? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and and it, it actually happens already in the Gospels. So mm. I mean, in, in um, Mark's gospel doesn't mention the name of the high priest. He just says high priest, but um, it, he's sort of subsumed into this council of, of elders and scribes and the high priest. And, and John's gospel, even more so, even though it mentions his name and mentions Caiaphas more than any other 
um, gospel, he as soon as he gets into this sort of um, the the sort of argy bargy between Pilate and and the waiting Jewish um, authorities, he just says the Jews and mm-hmm. um, or the chief priests. And again, there's no specific mention of Caiaphas. It's almost as if he's kind of rubbed away, and mm-hmm. and we're left with this sort of group of of negative um, hostile characters. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think you know this this is all part of this sort of late first century Christian um, sort of demonizing of, mm. of the people in the synagogue who, who they are having their own problems with. Right. I mean, that's not to say there wasn't any opposition at all in, in the time of Jesus, but it's it's being sort of broadened from those particular high priests to now sort of the Jewish mm-hmm. authorities and even the people sometimes. Which didn't do any favors for the Jewish people over the next bunch of centuries, no, unfortunately. No, I know these 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 are pretty pretty difficult texts from yeah. from several points of view. Yeah, and then well, let's let's jump to the nineties, the uh, <laughs> the nineteen nineties, um, because they found Caiaphas's tomb, right? Mm, yeah, th- I, I mean, know. do we think Amazing. that that's, that that I mean, is do scholars think that was definitely it, or is there some discussion about it? Well, there is a bit of discussion. I mean, there are some people who say, oh, you know, we're not quite sure. And part of the problem is it has got carvings on it, which seem to say Joseph, son of Caiaphas, Hmm. which probably is our Joseph Caiaphas. But um, they're written in this sort of old Aramaic script and they're they're a little difficult to decipher. I mean, it could be a slightly different name, but... um, but it's um, it's a it's a it's a beautiful ossuary that is a bone box, and um, so yeah. he's been sort of laid out for a year, and then after that he gets put into this box. And 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 in addition to a man of about sixty, there's also a woman, a younger woman, and some some children. So you know mm. they may well have been the family of of Joseph Caiaphas, but. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I think that you know the, there's a very good chance that it is our our Caiaphas, and That's um, pretty amazing, I mean, it, yeah. it is, it is. I mean, to think you know that that this is something a tangible link with yeah. um, not just the Gospels, but you know that the central event in 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 the whole New Testament, wow. and it the, it's nowadays that the ossuary itself, the bone box, is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, and it, they've got this little sort of corner of, of Christian artifacts, so they've mm. got. Caiaphas's ossuary, and they've got uh, an inscription to do with Pontius Pilate that says Pontius Pilate, the pre- prefect of Judea. Hmm. And there's also an ankle bone with uh, a nail through it, which shows that um, victims of crucifixion were sometimes buried because it was found um, in another ossuary. Hmm. Um, so there's this little sort of shrine to, you know, Christian artifacts. And um, I mean, I, I, I find it really interesting that, and, you know, quite amazing, really, that, that, that somebody that I've I've spent so much time thinking about and writing about suddenly here is this this thing that actually sort yeah, of connects tangible. you. I mean, like you said, yeah. we almost never get that right with 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 things mm. of this nature with biblical accounts. Like to have something tangible to hold on to. That's that's cool. Yeah, except I can't hold on to it because it's in a <laughs> yeah, and I'm in a museum. But it, I'll have to take it. I'm very <laughs> glad that we go. don't do that same <laughs> tradition where you go back and you take the people's bones and put them in a separate box a year later. That's, that's creepy. I don't want to do that. 
Some parts of Europe, I think they still do that. Is For it real? Greece? I think oh, they wow. still do that. Yeah, yeah. Secondary burial isn't isn't that uncommon, and 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 I think it's sort of a version of what they were doing in Rome. In Rome, they 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 burnt the bodies usually, and then mm. they sort of put them in an urn. So this is a kind of a Jewish version of that. Oh, okay. So um, yeah, it's, it, it is all a bit bit grim to yeah, think I'm of sort of going back and putting putting the box <laughs> you're not gonna do it no <laughs> well awesome um thank you so much for for walking us through the history of Caiaphas um one of the many books that Helen has written about fascinating <laughs> characters that we're gonna cover in, in other episodes but uh Helen thank you so much and uh thank you to our listeners and we will see you next time on Biblical Time Machine thank you Hey there, Biblical Time Machine listeners. We love getting your emails. We've gotten a bunch, and you've suggested some really cool topics that we're going to be doing in future episodes. And when you suggest a cool topic and we do it, we're going to shout out your name over the air, if that's what this is, over the air. I'm not even sure, over the the wires. Um, So we will give you credit. So please email us. Uh, Go to our website, biblicaltimemachine.com. We have a contact page fill it out we get your emails we respond to everyone and we'd love to hear your ideas for future episodes of the podcast thanks